We're dropping in on one of the most spectacular passages in Paul's letter to the Romans. And we've been in the Gospel of Matthew much of the year, but the preaching lectionary has also been suggesting Romans texts during the summer. And we can't always preach on every text, but for the next two weeks, we're choosing the epistle versus the gospel text. So here we are in Romans 12, one of the most soaring passages in the letter. We hear of Paul's thoughtful and impassioned exhortations to the church. And this was probably penned in a letter by Paul or one of his companions in the late 50s CE. Paul spends the first three quarters of this letter talking about the marvels of a God who's shown up in most fully and personally and relationally in the face and body and presence of Jesus. Paul celebrates what this means for the human race, for all of creation. And he spends 11 chapters in Bible travel time explaining God's plan for the world and this way of a living God who shows up in the life and the uh, lifestyle of this relatively obscure carpenter's son who's now turned into a rabbi and a teacher. Paul's been explaining what God is up to for 11 chapters, and I'm going to use uh, some of the message translation of the Bible to give us some background of what these 11 chapters have been like. He explains what God's been up to. A new power is in operation, Paul writes. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. That's Romans chapter 8. Everything comes from God, Paul writes. Everything happens through God. Everything ends up in God. Always glory, always praise. Paul also explains Jesus' part in God's plan for saving and redeeming humanity in the world. Paul writes, God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death when we were too weak or rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And now we're set right with God by means of this death. There's no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. And if when we were at our worst, God put us on friendly terms, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of Jesus' resurrection life. That's Romans chapter 5. And then Paul also explains what's behind all this. What's going on behind the scenes and where is this going? He writes, God knew what God was doing right from the beginning. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same way as the life of his son. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in the son. After God made that decision of what God's children should be like, God followed it up by calling them by name. And after he called them by name, God set them on a solid basis with himself. 
And then after getting them established, God stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what God had done. For 11 chapters, Paul takes logic and argument and critical thinking and poetry and renewed imagination and prayer, and he marvels at what God has done. And now he turns a corner in chapter 12, three quarters of the way through the letter, and he exhorts to the church in Rome and to us as the present-day church what we might do. And so we listen and read this ancient letter, and we pray that it again might inform us of how we live together and live out the good news of a God who has put God's love on display and continues to gloriously complete God's good and life-giving destiny in us and through us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a pretty popular verse, and maybe you've been at youth rallies or worship conferences or you've written or been a part of church vision statements around the world that maybe have used Romans 12.1 as a theme verse. So I want to poke at that verse a bit and remember the context and maybe put our theological thinking caps on and ask Paul again, what were you really saying there, Paul? Is this a purity culture text? Is this Paul saying that Christians choose life better than everybody else? Do Christians have the upper hand at being better Canadian citizens than our neighbors? No. But we Christians do have a good and meaningful work to do in the here and now. We seek to be living sacrifices. And for first century Christians, this meant in the realm of the Roman Empire, they would shake their fist at the powers and not conform to the ways of violence or greed, oppression, browbeating. They would not conform to the ways of quid pro quo. I'll do you a favor if you do me a favor. Or that way of, if I behave rightly, then I'll somehow get this great payoff. Or I'll be able to climb that ladder if I do the right things for the right people. And for us as 2020 Christians, this means we'll do the same in terms of not conforming and allowing ourselves to be transformed. We'll rely on the gifts and the grace of a living God. We'll refuse to live by the requirements of those who lord power over us. We'll not be driven by the dangling carrot of acquiring more commodities and goods. But we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our souls, by this God who we believe is a living God. A God who lives, a God who empowers, a God who indwells and works in us so that we might be a people of peace, reconciliation, forgiveness, justice, and mercy. Therefore, by the mercies of God... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
And Paul promises these Roman Christians hearers, and he promises us that we'll have the gift of discernment. We'll be able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul follows with phrases that tell us that this is a work that we do together as the community of faith. This isn't a one-person hero journey. This is we, the church, working, serving together. In step with the Spirit. In step with each other. It's a work done in humility. It's a work that seeks to see ourselves as we really are. And we recognize our dependence on God and one another. And it's not based on the amount of faithfulness that we can conjure up in our own strength. No, it's the gift and the faithfulness of God poured out upon us and moving through us as we pour out God's grace and gifts to the world. And Paul talks of seven gifts of God's grace and faithfulness that contribute to this way of living sacrifice. These gifts that build us up, these gifts that will transform us, sustain us, shape us, and equip us to be agents of hope in a world that needs a good word, a hopeful word. The pressures of pandemic continue to press in on us, but we have this good work that we can continue to do. So I'm going to touch on the seven gifts and give us time to pause and reflect and think of how those gifts might be playing out in our community of faith in these days. Prophecy is the first gift. And these gifts, Paul doesn't put a ranking of what gifts are better than the other. He simply talks about these seven gifts and says that they all need to be a part of the working together of the body of Christ. So prophecy is the first one. In our community of faith, we have prophetic voices that help us discern God's word and God's heart. We speak prophetically to one another, a word that is founded in the word of God, the words of Christ. And these prophetic words build us up. And we're blessed at First Baptist Church to have so many pastors and preachers and chaplains and seminary professors who add to the richness of our prophetic ministry. The second gift is service. We serve one another. But with this service, Paul was probably wanting to talk about how we serve the least and the last and the lost among us. How do we serve the marginalized, the oppressed, those pushed to the brink of heartbreak and heartache? And what does it look like when we band together as the body of Christ to make a place for them? to make a way for them to open the doors of our hearts and our community of faith to make space for those who are so often overlooked. We partner and are resourced by many organizations here at First Baptist, whether it's Canadian Baptist Ministries, who we will take an offering for today, for E4C, Mustard Seed, Urban Promise, ministries of reconciliation like Healing at the Wounding Place, These are ways that we serve the least, the last, and the lost. The third gift is teaching. We teach the way of Jesus. It's this way of radical welcome, unboundaried hospitality, amazing grace, 
In a world that teaches us so many ways to deceive and to be suspicious about the other, when we teach the way of Jesus, we learn this way of humility, of downward mobility. We heard it last week in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says, If anyone wants to become my follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There's a mystery but also this reality to God's economy, that in the midst of death and weakness, there's healing and power and resurrection life. The fourth gift is encouragement. This is a great one and easy access for all of us. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word, Cloudy all day. Home, home on the range at First Baptist Church. Um, There's so many reasons for us to be discouraged, right? So many reasons to be anxious and unsure. And this is one of the gifts that we can all be a part of in these days. Encouragement. I was thinking this week about a memory from 26 years ago in my second year of seminary, one of my professors told me in my pastoral ministry class to have an encouragement file. Thanks, Mick, if you're out there listening today. He said, fill it, and when times are challenging, run to it and read it. So yes, I have an encouragement file. I actually have... Four eras of encouragement files. One that started in California and one that I started building in Vancouver. Uh, One from Lethbridge, Alberta, and then one from Edmonton. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out to my California friends who might be watching today. I still have the shirt from 1998 where you wrote nice things on it. Yes, hangs in my closet. It's kind of getting a little off-white in that. How many? 1998? That's a lot of years. But then I have my e-file, my encouragement file, and I was taking time to look at this and the many ways that Sandy and me and the family have been encouraged over the past 12 years. And... I came across these Grey Cup tickets that were an encouragement many years ago. If you want to keep on giving to the e-file, it's here, baby. It's here, buddy. You may not have a file, but you have a place where you collect encouragement. And are you the kind of person that is filling other people's files? There's one thing that we can all do today. We can fill other people's files with words, with texts, with images, with greetings, with blessings, with letters, with phone calls of encouragement. We can do that today. The fifth gift is generosity. We all know what it looks like when hearts are stingy or pocketbooks are stingy. We might even know what that feels like, too, to be a recipient of a stingy heart. 
May it not be so for the community of Christ. Let us be generous with our money, with our gifts, our time, our hearts, and our lives. The sixth gift is diligent leadership. And we see models of leadership every day that might be breaking our hearts. When we think of the journey to the November U.S. election, or we think of a potential election that we might even have here in Canada in the fall. It's painful sometimes to watch the bravado of the bully leader or the insensitivity of the insecure leader or the indifference of the crooked leader. Oh God, help us as the body of Christ as we pray for a culture of diligent leadership. For us as a church, that means praying for ministry leaders, praying for church council, praying for one another. And then we think of all the ways that we lead as a community of faith across Edmonton this week. Those of us who will be leading in schools, provincial or federal meeting rooms this week, our workplaces, our medical and care facilities, and of course our homes, might we lead with diligence that we might not bow down to the whims and pressures of the easy shortcut or the shady deal. And then finally, the gift of cheerful compassion. What a great image for us to, to, to focus on. And I think of cheerful compassion, and I think of the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. That verse from Hebrews 12 um, comes alive when I think about cheerful compassion. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. We may find ourselves in places of intimidation or painful trial, or we hear the pain and hurts of neighbors or friends, family members, or even strangers. With cheerful compassion might we enter in. And I think of the phrases from the prayer of St. Francis that might help us. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there's sadness, joy. As we close our time in this first section of Romans 12, I invite you to pause. Which of these gifts has God been stirring up lately in your life? Maybe you've been a receiver of one of these gifts. Prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, generosity, leadership, compassion. Or maybe you've been able to give of these great gifts from God's Spirit. But I want to encourage us, maybe in these days, to hone in on one. One gift. And for the next 40 days, either celebrate how great that gift is, or maybe find ways that you might live that gift out. In our gift, in our community of faith, or in your home, in your workplace, in the hallways that you are roaming in the days ahead. And I thought, 40 days, you know, in this long season of Pentecost, let's build in another 40-day window where we do something with intention, with 
hope with healing in the wings of God's mercies. So for 40 days, that would take us to October 15th, 40 days of cultivating one of these gifts in our community and also celebrating the ways that we are receiving those gifts. In our Zoom coffee hour today after service, we will start talking about that. We'll share some ideas about how these gifts are playing out in our community of faith in these days. And might you pause to look around the room or look around the imagination of your mind at the people who are a part of your life and give thanks for one of those gifts in how it's playing out. Or if you've got people in the room with you today, maybe look at one of them and just say, you've got the gift of compassion. Thanks for gifting that to me over the past couple of days or the past few weeks. You've got the gift of encouragement. Thanks for encouraging me. And audibly say it out loud, words of thanks to those people who give these gifts to you. As we close, I want to close with a word of prayer. And you might keep your eyes open during this prayer because it relates to us being the body of Christ in the world. Gracious, gift-giving God, we thank you for forming us into the church, the body of Christ in the world. Help us to live as Jesus taught us, loving you, loving neighbor, unified in Christ, using our varied gifts and our skills. We do this for the service of ministry. We present our bodies as living sacrifices until all things are transformed into what is good and acceptable and perfect. We pray with thanksgiving in the name of Christ. Amen.